Okay, so starting at verse 16. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? the man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Well, thank you very much, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Um, Some of you uh, might just remember the 2001 Michael Jackson hit, Heaven Can Wait. Uh, Now, I know some of you are thinking, actually, it was a cover version of a song released by Meatloaf in 1977. How many, how many of you were thinking that? The point of the song is that Jackson was so in love with his girlfriend that nothing heaven could offer would be worth giving her up for. Now that he has found the girl of his dreams, life on earth is so good that heaven can wait. If the angels came for me tonight, sang Jackson, I'll tell them no. Heaven can wait. Well, it's a simple but powerful message of romantic love. Valentine's Day is a few weeks away. You might want to take note and write it in a card to somebody. And no doubt it sold a few records as well. The reason I'm mentioning it is because it just happens to be a perfect summary of the worldview of the young man that Jesus meets in Matthew 19. Not because he is in love with a woman, he may be, but we're not told that. 
but because he believes that the world to come is not worth pursuing at the expense of what he has now. It's not that he doesn't believe in heaven. He does believe in heaven. It's not that he doesn't want heaven. He does want it. But in his view, in his calculation, heaven is not so attractive and so valuable that he is prepared to lose what he has now for what he will gain then. Heaven can wait, is his philosophy. And Matthew has placed this encounter here, not so that we might judge the young man as foolish or misguided, but to shine a light into our own hearts, to ask us whether we have grasped the true value of the kingdom that Jesus is on his way to establish, or whether with Michael Jackson and Meatloaf, we believe that life and heaven and everything Jesus has to offer can wait. Well, the passage divides into two conversations, as you'll see, one between the man and Jesus in 1622, and then a further discussion with the disciples who have been listening in in 23 to 30. And we're going to look at the passage in those two sections, and you'll see two headings on the outline if that is helpful. But why don't I pray again and ask for God's help as we turn to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we open your word and as we listen to Jesus, we are brought face to face with the things that really matter, with ultimate realities, with ultimate decisions. And we thank you for this message of hope. Thank you that you're going to teach us this morning about the true value of heaven, all that Jesus has died to achieve for us. We pray that we might end this morning different to how we came in, uh, more secure, more hopeful, more thankful, as we take your word and believe it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's uh, begin then with the route to life in 1622. Have a look at verse 16. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life. Unusually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this meeting, and all three gospel writers just give us a little bit more information about the man. Mark describes him as urgently running up and falling on his knees before Jesus with his question. Luke mentions that he is a ruler, and Matthew later tells us that he is also young and rich. And so we have the rich young ruler, And I don't know about you, but I think he is possibly the highest quality prospective disciple so far. I mean, wouldn't you love it if this man came up with this question to you? He's young, he's keen, he's outstandingly moral, he's religiously orthodox, he's respectful, he's seemingly teachable, and it doesn't do any harm at all that he is also massively wealthy. Wouldn't you want him... Well, you may want him to be your son-in-law if you're prospecting for a son-in-law, but wouldn't you want him to be a member of your church? Let's get him along to start up as soon as we can. And so he is a high-quality prospect. And yet as soon as this unnamed man opens his mouth, attentive readers of Matthew will already have a feeling that this is not going to end well. 
Firstly, because teacher, while respectable, is actually always the way Jesus is addressed in Matthew by people who will not follow him in the end. Secondly, because we know, even before Jesus answers it, that there is something off about his question. You might want to look at his question in verse 16 and imagine you're in a Bible study and the Bible study his leader has asked you, underline everything you think that is wrong with his question. Well, one thing that's right with his question is the desire for eternal life. Remember, I think we did it about a year ago, he likened the kingdom of heaven to an amazing hall of precious treasure that a man stumbled upon in a field. In the same little section, actually it was September over a year ago we did it, a supersized pearl that is unmatched in beauty and value. In other words, Matthew has been trying to convince us that this kingdom of Jesus is, is really good. It really is worth having. And if you just cast your eye through the passage, you'll see that various phrases are used interchangeably for this same reality. Eternal life, verse 16. Treasure in heaven, verse 21. Entering the kingdom of heaven, verse 24. Being saved, verse 25. And then one more phrase in verse 28 that we'll come to later. And these are all different ways of talking about the same reality. The life of the age to come. The expectation that was promised in the Old Testament that all the Jews of Jesus' time believed that this world was going to come to an end and a new world was going to replace it. This is the kingdom. This is what Jesus has come to establish. And so what is right about the man's question is to ask that question, how can I get into it? There's nothing selfish about that question. There's nothing off about that question. It is exactly the question you should ask if Jesus is in front of you. How do I get into it? What do I do? This is no philosophical trick like the Pharisee's question. It is thoroughly genuine. And it might be that there are some here this morning for whom that question is very real and very live. Perhaps, as Nathan said, you're new to Christian things and you're investigating and exploring. And this is the question for you. How do I get that future? Well, you need to listen very carefully to the answer. But first, how would you answer the question in verse 16? Well, again, Bible study leader says, how are you answering it? And we go around the table and everybody gives their answer. And you might just want to think in your own head, what would be my answer to the question in verse 16? I mean, if someone asks you this question, it's actually pretty easy, isn't it? I think most of us would say something like this. What do I have to do to get eternal life? Well, you know, Christianity is actually not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. In fact, you can't do anything to qualify to get into heaven the message of Christianity is that Jesus has come to give you eternal life. So all you have to do is believe in him. I think that's a pretty good answer. It's a correct answer. It's a biblical answer. If this is how you answered in your head, go to the top of the class. And a bonus point, if you notice that it happened just after 13 to 15, where Jesus had said the qualification for entering the kingdom is to become like a child 
in childlike humility. And here is a man coming with great moral self-confidence. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. But that is not how Jesus answers. Have a look at it in verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. It sounds like Jesus has not been to our evangelism conversation course. The answer is puzzling. It is not the way we would answer. In fact, at first sight, he seems to confirm the man in his attempt to gain salvation by works. But that is, of course, because Jesus is one step ahead of us. And he's already put his finger on the man's real problem. So follow Jesus' logic with me. What is going on here? Well, firstly, Jesus challenges the man's assumptions about God. The man had asked Jesus for one good thing that he had to do. As if he had done everything else and there was just one more kind of great spiritual feat that was remaining and that would clinch the deal. And Jesus turns the conversation from the man and his actions to God and his person. There is only one who is truly good, namely God. And the implication is that only God is qualified for heaven. Only God has the perfect goodness, the unblemished moral standard to deserve life in the kingdom. And so the first thing he's saying to the man is, if you want to qualify yourself to enter the kingdom on your own merits, you're going to have to be as good as God. And how do you know what that is like? Well, a good place to start is to go back to all the commandments that God has given because those commandments reflect his perfect character. And so if you want to be as good as God, then let's start there. Start with the commandments. It's a pretty high bar. Amazingly, however, the man is undaunted. And I love verse 18. Which ones? Jesus replied, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. So now this is getting a little bit harder, isn't it? Jesus has asked for one good thing. He's, the, he, our man has asked for one good thing. Jesus' answer is that he must keep all of the commandments. And then he lists some of the Ten Commandments. But he does so in a strange order. He gives him the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth. Then he goes back to the fifth. And then he adds this command about loving your neighbor, which is not from the Ten Commandments, but is from Leviticus 19. And it's a kind of a summary of those commandments. But the man, who we're now told is young, remains undaunted. You can almost hear his impatience in verse 20. If there was a, a kind of a year in the Greek, it would be there. Verse 20, all these I've kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? This is Sunday school stuff. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the certificate. Give me something better I can get my teeth into. And of course, the reader of Matthew at this point is supposed to be thinking, I'm not so sure about that. Didn't Jesus say back in the Sermon on the Mount 
that actually there is a little bit more to these laws than you might first think. Didn't he take us in the Sermon on the Mount to the, the whole intention of God behind the law? Didn't he tell us that if you are just angry with your brother, you have committed murder, Matthew 5.21. If you just lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery, 5.28. If you want to be a disciple, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, 5.20. Didn't he tell us you have to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, 5.48. And so this man has not only got an inadequate view of his own self-worth, he's got a completely inadequate view of the goodness of God. Surely if he had understood the white-hot holiness of God that lay behind those commands, he wouldn't be coming to Jesus with his, CD, his CV, he'd be in the dust, begging for mercy. And it's in this context that we come to verse 21, and I guess this is where it gets uncomfortable, both for him and for us. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Matthew's a very careful author, isn't he? And it's only now, in the very last word of the encounter, that he reveals the key piece of information, his wealth, literally his many possessions. And it turns out that this is his real problem. This is the problem lying deep in his heart that Jesus has so skillfully and so painfully exposed. So just think about the conversation that we've just seen. I wonder if we can see now that it's no accident that when Jesus listed the commandments, he missed out the 10th commandment. What does the 10th commandment say? Well, I think the 10th commandment is the one that we probably take most lightly. It's the one that says, do not covet your neighbor's house or wife or servants or donkey or other possessions. And therefore, it is the commandment that commands greed, condemns greed and materialism and hoarding and a love of money. And so it turns out that right from the beginning, Jesus has, has clocked what this man's issue is, that it's his love of money, it's his greed, his covetousness. This is what has disqualified him from the kingdom his problem is wealth. Now let's think about this. Why is wealth and money such a problem? And why does Jesus insist that he must give it all away? And how does that apply to us? If we want to enter the kingdom, do we have to do the same? Now we have to be careful here, don't we? As Nathan reminded us earlier, we do always look for a way of wriggling out of the difficult parts of Scripture. And here, one convenient response is for us to say, well, Jesus only says this to this one man. No one is told in other parts of the Bible to give away all of their possessions. And it cannot be the case that no rich can enter the kingdom. That would exclude Abraham and Solomon and David and a number of New Testament believers as well. Surely it is possible for someone to follow Jesus and 
give away a good slug of their money and still enjoy a wealthy lifestyle. After all, didn't Zacchaeus, the tax collector, only give away half of his ill-gotten gains when he became a disciple in Luke 19? And so I think we're tempted, aren't we, to wriggle away from the challenge of this. Well, let me offer four brief reflections to help us. Firstly, the Bible insists that money is not spiritually neutral. There is something dangerous to our souls about money and wealth. That's why Jesus has got so much to say about it and other parts of the Bible too. Check out the book of Proverbs, for example, and the Gospel of Luke, and it's money, money, money all the way through, and the danger of it. And wealth is dangerous because it makes us feel powerful. With money, you can buy almost anything. Security, privacy, comfort, friends, influence, prestige. And rich people are tempted to trust their wealth because it does make you feel untouchable and secure. When you lose your job or your health fails or some other crisis happens, the money is there to protect you. It protects you from humiliation. It protects you from hardship. And that is a problem because we are not meant to trust money. We are meant to trust God. And this man had made money his God. And when forced to choose between one and the other, between the real God and the money God, he could not forsake one to serve the other. That is why money is so dangerous. The second observation I want to make is that I think this might be a blind spot for us. See, if I were to say, hands up, if you really think you are really rich, I'm not going to do it, don't worry. But I imagine if I did, I don't think many of us would put our hands up. And the reason we don't think we are rich is because there is always somebody richer than us. There is always the neighbor over the fence who has a bigger car or bigger house or more lavish holidays. Or there is always the person in the telegraph property section, you know, that that person who lives in that impossible dream house. But in world standards, most of us are rich. Now, what if I were to say, put your hands up if you think you are greedy or materialistic? I think even fewer hands would go up. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking as a pastor, I've been, I guess people have come to me with all kinds of sins and struggles and idolatries. Over the years, I've had people confess all kinds of sexual sins. When I say confess, I don't mean like a kind of a Catholic sort of confession. I just mean I'm struggling with this. Can you help me? I've had people talk about their hatred, their violence, their dishonesty, their laziness, their anger and pride. But I I, I cannot think of a time someone has come to me and said, you know, honestly, I'm struggling with greed. We just don't think this is our problem. And the fact that we don't think this is our problem tells me it probably is. And it's not just a problem for the rich. The idea that money can bring security and happiness can be a a noose around anyone's neck. Just listen to Paul in Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, yes, of course, impurity, yes, of course, lust, 
evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Thirdly, this is one of the reasons it's so important that Christians develop habits of financial generosity. The Bible gives us many reasons to be generous, cheerful givers, because we need to help people less fortunate than us, because we need to finance the work of the gospel, because giving is an act of worship in response to what God has done for us in Christ, because it's a very practical way we get to serve God, because everything we have belongs to God in the first place, but also because disciplined, intentional, sacrificial, financial generosity is actually a way that we can guard our hearts against the idolatry of greed. But the fourth observation is that money and wealth are not the only idols that can trap us like this. For others, it might be career, comfort, status, being popular, marital status. For some, it might be that deep-seated desire for sexual expression in a way the Bible forbids that we talked about last week. For some, it might be achieving health or some kind of feeling of peace and security. The point is that the fundamental call of God in the Old Testament is to have no other gods before him and the fundamental call of Jesus in the New Testament is to deny yourself and all expressions of self and all the desires of the self and to follow him. It's like the old monkey and the cookie jar illustration. You know, the one I've used this before, but it's a helpful illustration, isn't it? That the monkey sticks his hand into the cookie jar to get the cookie, but once his hand is grasping the cookie, he can't get his hand out of the jar. And so it faces a binary choice. Drop the cookie. Take the hand out of the jar. If it won't do that, it will starve to death. And I think this is such a helpful picture of what is going on here and such a helpful picture of the way we must let go of our idols. See, like the monkey, we, we want to have both. We convince ourselves we can have both. But we can't, because Jesus' call is absolute. We must abandon whatever it is that is stopping us from entering the kingdom. We must let go of whatever it is that is dividing our hearts between God and the world. Well, it's very easy to say, but how do we do it? We'll come back to the passage and the clue is the last thing that Jesus says to the man before he goes away. Look again at verse 21. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Do you notice that it's only right at the end that Jesus finally answers the man's question. He came to him and said, what one thing must I do to enter life? And now we have the answer, verse 21, follow me. See, the biggest mistake the man made in the end was misestimating Jesus. He called him a teacher, and of course, Jesus is a teacher. But Matthew has shown us that he is a savior. He's come into the world to die for our sins, 121. He's come to baptize with the Spirit to change us, 311. 
so that his people can be made new and can be perfect like his father and begin to live in a way that mirrors the father's perfection. He's come to forgive all who come to him in faith, 9-2. He's come to take off the, the burden of the law and replace it with a yoke that is light and easy, Matthew eleven twenty nine. And he's on his way, as we know by now, to die in Jerusalem, 1621, to pour out his blood for a new covenant, a new way of living. And Jesus calls a man to follow him. This is what you must do if you want to find life. To renounce the idol of your heart and take hold of something infinitely better. See, selling his wealth was not some final achievement that would earn him a place in heaven. It was the number one thing. It was the, the elementary thing. It was the simple thing he had to do to demonstrate that he really did trust Jesus. To let go of the cookie, take his hand out of the jar and grab hold of life. And I think this is what Jesus wants for each of us this morning. Do you remember in 1625, his call was to lose our life and find it in him. And that is the choice we all face. And when we end this morning, and there's a moment just to jot down reflections in that box, it might well be that there is something that you need to let go of in order to follow Christ with an undivided heart. But tragically, the man makes a different choice. How different he is to the man in chapter 13, who in his joy sold everything he had to buy the field and find the treasure. The man's wealth stands between him and heaven. And he has concluded that heaven can wait. This world has won. And so the encounter ends with sadness. But that's not all Matthew wants to show us, because all of this raises a question for the disciples. What about for those like them who have heeded the call to follow him? For sure, they didn't have the kind of wealth of this young, rich ruler, but they had left things. They had left, we're told in chapter 4, their fishing boats and nets and families and homes. Was this enough? Would it be worth it in the end? And so we come to the second conversation, 2330, and the reward of discipleship. And to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus insists that a rich man can only enter the kingdom with great difficulty. How difficult? Well, he uses this famous metaphor of the camel going through the eye of a needle. You sometimes hear this idea that there was a needle, which was a gate in Jerusalem, and the idea that actually this was something difficult but not too impossible, that if you got a camel to kind of bend down on its knees and you kind of shoved it through from behind, you could squeeze the camel through this gate. It's a load of nonsense, and it completely misses the point. The point is... This is the biggest animal that you will ever see in Palestine getting itself through the smallest imaginable opening. It's the image 
of the utterly impossible. Now look at the disciples' response, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I don't know if you've noticed, but in this section of Matthew that we're going through, the disciples are just reeling from one shock to another. And here is the latest shock, and Matthew uses a very strong expression. They were greatly astonished, literally means to strike out one's senses. I think a modern translation would be, their minds were blown. And the reason the disciples' minds were blown is because they, like everyone else at their time, assumed that being wealthy was a sign of God's approval. If God blesses certain people with wealth, then surely he's going to bless them in the world to come. So even if, if even the wealth can't have assurance, then who can? And in response, Jesus tells them three things. Firstly, he tells them it's impossible for anything a person to do to bring about his or her own salvation. It's impossible for a person to bring about their own salvation. Remember, this was the young man's original mistake. He thought he could work his way into the kingdom. He, and I think the disciples, believed the kingdom was for somebody's. But Jesus has reminded them in 13 to 15 that the kingdom is for nobody's. For those who come to God with this childlike, empty-handedness and acknowledge their spiritual poverty and beg for mercy they can never deserve. And the reason it's difficult for the rich to do that is because there is something about money and wealth that makes you feel like a somebody. That somehow your wealth is evidence that you are just a little bit better and clever and more worthy than others, that somehow God approves of you. If you have wealth, you just feel bigger. You're a camel. And it's very hard to shrink down, to be so small, to be so much of a nobody that you can get through this thing. It is God who must shrink down our egos into this nothingness so that we can come empty-handed and grasp the kingdom. And therefore, what we all need, whether fabulously wealthy or grindingly poor, is a work of God in our hearts to break the spell of this world, to smash the idol, to release our hands so that we can grab hold of treasure in heaven. And so the third thing Jesus does is he grants us a glimpse of what that treasure is in verse 27 to 30. It begins as often with Peter speaking for the others, verse 27. Peter answered, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Whatever motivation Peter has for asking that question, and we can surely dis discuss that through the week, it doesn't really matter right now, the answer of Jesus is gracious and surprising, and it puts everything else in perspective. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Now, there's more in that verse than we can unpack in the time that we've got. But I just want you to notice that the future Jesus is on about is very big and it's very good. The Greek word translated the renewal of all things is only used in one other place in the New Testament and it's, it's simply the word new genesis. In other words, the future Jesus has in mind is not some kind of cloudy existence where we float around on nighties playing hearts and miss out on the good things, which I suspect is what Michael Jackson had in mind, nor it is something that we can work out by our own efforts. It is a new genesis, a new beginning, a new creation. In other words, the hope of the Bible is that this world is going to come to an end and God is going to create a new world that is based on, but better than the new world. And this is what Jesus has come to bring about. Matthew actually gave a hint of it in the first verse of his book. He called this the book of Genesis, the book of new beginnings, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to bring about a world without death and disease and decay and disobedience and despair and the devil. A world that is more solid and real than this one, where we will be fully awake, fully alive, and fully as we were created to be. It is big. And it's also good because notice in verse 28 that this world belongs entirely to Jesus. The new creation will begin when he rises from the dead and it will last for eternity. And the new creation will be marked by Jesus reigning in glory uncontested. This world will be as God intended it to be. And I wonder if you ever think about how good that will be. Not in the kind of vague, abstract, distant kind of way, but in the solid reality of this world made new. Let me give you a tiny example. Emma and I had a, a week last week when we just seemed to be faffing with keys and locks. You know the kind of week? So we'd taken our car somewhere and we had to faff with frozen keyholes. I spent some time spraying WD-40 into a key lock. We'd been to the church building for something. The church building was locked. We had to open it up. We had to reset the alarm. Another bunch of keys. Emma at one point commented, how many bunches of keys do I have? In the same week, my shed's lock seized and had to get that sorted. We got back from a meeting in the dark and it was raining and we were faffing and fumbling with keys in the lock. It's just a little part of life, isn't it? Faffing with keys. And I just said to him, wouldn't it be great to live in a world without keys? Can you imagine? A world where you could leave doors unlocked where you didn't have to padlock things, where you didn't have to put alarms on and have passwords and cybersecurity and fences and all of these kind of things. And Emma said, well, that is the new creation forward to. And that's just one tiny example, isn't it, of a part of this world that will be better in the new because it will be ruled by Jesus. And whatever the details of the 12 judging Israel mean, we can talk about that over the I know we're not having coffee, but the metaphorical coffee. <laughs> what is clear is that the disciples won't be spectators. They'll be involved. There'll be work for them to do. 
verse 29. And it's in verse 29 that Jesus graciously answers Peter's question. Everyone, now not talking about the 12, but everyone, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now, I just want you to notice that Jesus opens up what he's been talking about so far as the slightly abstract term treasure. And he makes it tangible and tantalizing at the same time. Well, tangible because we know what these things are. We know how good it is, don't we, to have a family and to have a home. In fact, in the first century world, a family and a community were considered the two greatest things you could have. A community where you are loved and known, a family that you belong to. And yet, throughout Christian history, people leave those things and they sacrifice them for the kingdom. People leave their families, their communities, and they they go and serve Jesus elsewhere. People, as we saw last week, choose to be spiritual eunuchs, to forego the gift of marriage in order to serve the kingdom. People who could have great careers forego careers to serve Jesus in other ways. People who could have a comfortable life go to tough parts of the world to leave their families behind. And people trust God to provide for their children in the same way. It's tangible. We know how good these things are. And Jesus says, none of this will be lost. None of this will be lost. But it's also tantalizing because the promise is beyond comprehension, isn't it? I mean, look at the number, a hundred. Imagine having a hundred houses. I mean, we, it would be a bit of a pain, wouldn't it? We find one house enough to look after. But imagine having a hundred. And imagine having a hundred fathers. And of course, this is where we get into metaphor and imagery. And what is Jesus trying to tell us? Jesus is trying to tell us that God is not like us. God is not stingy. He's not keeping account. He's not going to be in anyone's debt, as we're going to see next week. The reward for the little we give is going to be exponential compared to what you have sacrificed. It's like an inverse loyalty card. My wallet seems to be filling up with loyalty cards and reward cards. Everywhere you go, there's another card. You buy nine coffees at Greg's. Well, eventually, I mean, for me, this is going to take a lifetime because I don't buy a lot of coffee. But I've now got these, these kind of little cards with two or three stamps on. I don't think I've ever yet actually cashed one in. The, the schemes always seem to finish before I get there or, we end, or the business closes down or something. But I actually think I hate these things because actually it's the very opposite of generosity. You buy nine coffees. You go to the same miserable shop nine times. You remember nine times to get your little crumbling piece of card out and you present it to the thing and wait for them to stamp it with their smug little barista face on. <laughs> Feeling all generous. 
And then about five years later, you rock up with your loyalty card, you present it, and you get your free, pathetic coffee. God is not like that. It is exactly the reverse in God's economy, but a hundredfold. You give up one thing, one small trinket of desire. Of course, it seems big at the time. Of course it does. To leave your family, to forego these things seems enormous. But in eternity, God is going to overwhelm you with his generosity so that whatever you've given up in this life, he will pour out so much in the next that you will not remember the sacrifice at all. And that is why he ends with verse 30. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be thirst. Here is the final sting in the tail. He's going to repeat this in 2016 and in reverse order. This seems to be the lesson that Jesus is teaching in this section. That if you want to be first in the kingdom, you've got to become a nobody. You've got to get through the eye of the needle, and that is a miracle. You've got to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Abandon yourself entirely. And if you do, God is so generous that you will miss out on nothing. There won't even be a word for loss or regret in the kingdom of heaven. For the sake of the things you've lost in this life, you'll gain the whole world. And so don't live with the philosophy of the rich young ruler. Don't live with the philosophy of Michael Jackson or Meatloaf, whichever you prefer. Don't live with the heaven can wait philosophy. Whatever is stopping you from following Jesus with an undivided heart, let go of it, lose it, and in eternity, God will make it look like less than nothing. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we are sorry for the ways we have lived in this world as if it were our final destination. We're sorry for every idol of our heart. We're sorry for our greed, our pursuit of self. And we're sorry that we ever deemed that we are good enough to enter your kingdom. And we thank you for this kind and gracious word of Jesus that shows us the truth. Thank you that in him you've brought forgiveness. Thank you that by the power of your spirit you can change us. And so we ask that you'd help us now to so grasp the kingdom that we will let go of our grip on this world and will follow Jesus with an undivided